Welcome to the new season of Parallel Justice, brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association and the National Center for Victims of Crime. I'm Renee Williams, your host for this series. This season, we will dive into the realities of our criminal justice system through exclusive interviews with expert attorneys who took on cases that dominated headlines. We will investigate civil justice sought for criminal acts and examine the ways that the civil justice system has forced change and made society safer. The topics we discuss may be disturbing and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics are triggering and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center. We acknowledge that even though these views may be controversial, we know silence, especially on tough issues, only enables wrongdoers and perpetuates abuse. Our goal in these discussions is to bring these issues to light and make victims aware of the systems available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. We have a very special guest with us today who, in addition to being an attorney and an NCBBA member, is a published author. Carrie Goldberg is joining us. She owns the Victims' Rights Law Firm, C.A. Goldberg, PLLC. She is also the author of Nobody's Victim, Fighting Psychos, Stalkers, Pervs, and Trolls. And for those of you who cannot see us because nobody can, she has a great jacket on right now that, that has that, that motto, let's fight the psychos, stalkers, pervs, and trolls. So Carrie, before we get into these two cases, can you just give a brief introduction to our listeners? Yes, um, I'm so excited to, to be here today. Um, so um, my name is Carrie Goldberg, and I own the victim's rights law firm based out of Brooklyn, C.A. Goldberg, PLLC. And basically, we um, we fight for victims of online and offline sexual, or not our favorite clients, but our favorite um, adversaries actually are, are the big ones. We like to go after uh, Department of Education, um, municipalities, big tech, um, but we also love cases on the other end of the spectrum where we're getting orders of protection for uh, abusers and, and dealing with intimate partner violence. But I think it's important that you said we like to go after the big ones. Um, that's a huge part of what we're going to talk about today, but we repeat it a lot on this podcast. The only way you make societal changes, the only way you really protect victims is to go after those folks. So there's no criminality that attaches to them oftentimes. Um, so the only way that you can actually make policy change and make the world safer is by holding them accountable. Yeah. And, and I, you know, there, there, there are two main ways to do that. You get, you know, ferociously big money judgments for your clients. Um, but also you can publicly shame, shame them and litigation is the best tool for that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those big money judgments, it's not just about compensating the victim. It's the only time they actually pay attention. Mm -hmm. Yes. The only true. time. <laughs> so yeah, we're here to talk about two cases. They have a lot of commonalities to them, um, but you went after two of the big ones here and that's the case of Hadley versus Anaheim and Herrick versus Grinder, And I wanna start first with Michelle's, Michelle Hadley's case because I think it's so, so complex. 
I'm not sure that this is not an impossible task, but could you give us a three minute overview of the background of Ms. Hadley's story? Yes. Um, so Michelle Hadley was a marketing grad student in um, California, and she had just gotten over a breakup from her ex-fiance. It had been an abusive and controlling relationship. And her ex-fiance was uh, a federal marshal. And after they broke up, uh, she began to get um, these, these notifications on her computer saying that you know, new uh, Craigslist ads and new email accounts had been registered to, to her name. And she found that really strange. And, and then shortly after that, she got an order of protection um, I, where she was the respondent um, by this woman named Angela Diaz. Also strange, she didn't know anybody named Angela Diaz, but, but attached to the complaint were um, all these emails that uh, looked as though Michelle had written them. But she, uh, she soon found out that Angela Diaz was the name of the woman that her ex-fiance was now uh, Fast forward a few more weeks um, and she, uh, cop cars show up at her home and arrest her. And Michelle has no idea what's going on. Um, but she's, she soon discovers that uh, she's basically been, that basically that there are all these Craigslist accounts uh, that, have, that are somehow affiliated with her name that are setting up sex dates for Angela and making it look as though Angela has rape fantasies and wants somebody to come to her apartment to, to sexually assault her. Angela and Ian, once they say that they discovered this, then they start to report Michelle over and over and over again to, to law enforcement. And, uh, and so Michelle is released the next day. And then a few days later, she's arrested again. And this second time, She's now, her bail is set for a million dollars and she's being uh, charged with like 12 counts, 12 felony counts for, for things like attempted rape and stalking and harassment. And Michelle's very, you know, she has no idea, you know, like no idea what's, what's going on, but this had been a very abusive relationship. And so she suspected that, that Ian was, was retaliating against her. Um, and she ultimately spent 88 days in prison um, before a, a detective finally discovered that, hey, you know, there's something really fishy going on here. And, uh, and it turns out that law enforcement had just basically been acting as, as basically this couple was, was creating these, these emails and and then forwarding them to, um, and, and then the, the woman had falsely reported an actual sexual assault that, that then um, Michelle was, was blamed for. So um, uh, Michelle had been exonerated and Angela had been arrested. And Michelle had a theory that it wasn't just Angela that was responsible for this. You know, Angela didn't know her from anybody and Michelle believed that it was actually the couple but we also, um, you know, felt that Anaheim Police Department was was ultimately responsible for this because if they had done just the most basic investigation into the IP addresses and into the um, into the doctored um, evidence that they kept forwarding, the couple told 
they could have e easily have concluded that all the material was being generated from the condo that the couple lived in. We sued Angela and Ian, but we also sued the city of Anaheim. And our big claim was, was um, 1986, and we claimed Monell liability, which was a, um, an experimental cause of action. Okay. So let's break that down. Yeah. What's 1986? For those who don't know, like me specifically, um, what is 1986 yeah. and what is Monell liability? So 1986 is a, uh, basically when you um, are alleging that there's been a constitutional deprivation, um, then you can sue a, a municipality uh, and say that uh, there's, you know, our client was was injured from this constitutional deprivation. And in our case, uh, Michelle was, she lost her liberty for, for 88 days and, and faced the incredible burden for much, for many more months of uh, what, you know, was potentially going to be a life sentence if she was found guilty. And then Monell liability is a claim that you can have against a municipality, um, a government actor, and basically say, because of this policy and procedure, um, there basically was no way for the rank and file to get it right. There was a little bit of precedent, this was all in California, there was a little bit of precedent where um, the absence of a policy and procedure where there should be one can be grounds for Monell liability. And so that's what we argued and it, um, it succeeded in overcoming uh, the motion for summary judgment. So this seems like it was supposed to be an elaborate plot that shouldn't have come to light forever. Um, and I, I think that that's what people would hear in their mind, like, oh, this is this elaborate plot. It really wasn't. They were just emailing from different emails and literally somebody <laughs> only needed to do their job, which I, I think is thing one, you know, like just check the IP address because anybody right. can pick up an email. So they just didn't. Right. So, so one of the, the most annoying aspects of this, this case was that when Michelle was exonerated, there were public statements released by the city of Anaheim saying, oh my gosh, there was this, this, you know, super elaborate and complex, um, you know, cyber crime that happened. And, you know, basically they wanted to make it look like, like there was no way that they could, that the city of Anaheim and the the Anaheim police could have detected, you know, this, this enormous elaborate plot. But the fact was that even if they had just said, hey, send us the email headers for the emails that this couple kept forwarding to law enforcement, they could have seen that. Or if they just recognized the basics of, of intimate partner violence. Um, additionally, when Michelle started to receive these suspicious emails saying that she had created these Craigslist ads and these Microsoft um, email accounts. She not only reported to the platforms that she knew nothing about, about these, she actually reported to the Anaheim police. And so she, before she was even arrested the first time, she had called detectives and gotten a detective assigned to her um, where she said, hey, I think that my ex-fiance is stalking me and trying to, to uh, framing. She saw it happening. And now I did see where Anaheim did call it a, an elaborate plot. And I, I saw some references to she had sent an email that 
we like to call women crazy when we've been broken up with um, and nobody wants to look into the real thing. So she had sent an email that would be described, that was described as a little disturbing and scary, but that somebody actually then took her words and started using those words in every email since. So I think that would be the mm-hmm. most elaborate part of any of this. Right, right. So so it, under the stress of the, um, uh, of the breakup, uh, she did send a couple emails um, that were that were actually nothing like the ones that that were then attributed to her. I mean, the ones that were attributed to her, I mean, they they had all these images of decapitated, you know, women and mangled bodies, and and I mean, they and then they were threatening rape, they were threatening murder. The ones that Michelle had written were just, they were biblical and referenced passages of the Bible. Um, and so even though they uh, kind of took a little bit of that language, uh, the actual context was nothing similar at all. So she has to sit in jail for almost three months. Mm-hmm. And, does- and not just in jail, but she was uh, in the sex offender. We'll get to that. But so she sits in prison. How does it finally unravel that it wasn't her? And what did it take to get somebody to believe her? There was a new detective um, put on the case. He was a retired guy named um, Detective Becerra. And the DA's office, I just put this file on his, and, but he was an experienced law enforcer. And so he saw this, uh, this case and, and saw that, um, you know, w- one of the allegations was that, as I mentioned, um, that Angela had been sexually assaulted. And he saw that, hey, this is, this is an alley that actually had all these cameras. He went there. He just did basic gumshoe detective work. He went to the, you know, he didn't, he wasn't a, a cyber wizard himself at all. He just was like, okay, we need to go get, you know, like the, the footage shows that there was nobody there. We had that, that information all along. Um, you know, there were three different cameras looking at the garage where, where um, this alleged, there's been a horrible mistake. So one day, um, Michelle's in jail and the uh, DA and the, um, and this detective just come there, come into her cell and just tell her that there's been a horrible mistake. Um, but nevertheless, they don't exonerate her for another three months. They release her from jail after a few more days. Um, and, and, and another uh, same time that I think is related, it's, it's ambiguous whether or not it is, was that Angela and Ian, the couple had broken up. Um, turned out that she had um, lied to him about being pregnant with twins. And, and so Ian then was really mad at her. And he then reported to the police that, um, that this had all, all the action and all the reports against Michelle had actually been a ruse and Angela was responsible. You said that Ian eventually reported Angela. He sang like a bird, but I've seen articles now where we know that he had a lot to do with it. So let's just start with Angela and the criminal the criminal portion. What happened to Angela? So around the time that Michelle was exonerated, Angela was arrested and she pled guilty and served about three years of, of jail. She's now released. But Ian has skated for some time. He's still not for in some jail. time. He's 
he's a free man. Um, however, uh, he was finally charged uh, with a federal with federal crimes um, related to computers and obstruction of justice. The obstruction charge uh, pertained to him lying under oath to, uh, during a deposition to me um, and also to uh, the destruction of, of, of evidence. Um, so, so he um, has been a free man, but, but that might change. Now, and you mentioned in the deposition to you, so I wanna talk about that. He's not face jail, she has. Um, so I read a great interview with, with Michelle where she talked about, even if Ian goes to prison as well, that doesn't solve a lot of this um, and a lot of the pain afterwards. You know, she talked about in job interviews, she has to explain why she was in prison for three months. Why didn't she work for a year? She has debt from that. Um, she worries about when she goes on a first date, they will find out what happened and just want to talk about that. So none of that solves, um, nothing about them going to prison solves those things that she's living with every day. And that's where you come in. Um, and it's an interesting case because again, it's against Anaheim, but, but do you want to talk about kind of how you all made the decision to sue the city of Anaheim and to also sue Ian and Angela? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and what that process was for both you and for her. Michelle was very injured, not just by Angela and Ian, um, but also by the betrayal um, from the, the city of Anaheim and the APD. So um, it was really important to Michelle that, that she not just hold these, these, this couple accountable who, who, who um, masterminded this plot, but also that there be institutional change so that this doesn't happen to anybody else. And there, you know, there were two two layers of, of betrayal. Uh, there's the criminal, but then the check and balance is having the criminal justice system be able to detect obvious fabrications, and that system failed her horrendously. So there is a slightly happy end to this story. Well, first, is the mm -hmm. civil case over? The civil case is over um, against all three of our defendants. And, and also, I, I want to take up a point that, that you mentioned, Renee, which is that, is that with, with any crime, we, we have a Google problem afterwards. Uh, you know, not only are people punished for, um, you know, by our, our legal system, but they're also punished by our search engine system. And because if, if it's a high-profile crime or something that just is is titillating to the to the general then there's going to be articles about it and uh, and there were many about this and Michelle even when she was in prison was getting fan mail from perverts who uh, thought that you know she from both both fans and and also people who thought that she was despicable because they'd read all these articles about about this crime and they believed it but, but even after Michelle was exonerated and, and stuff, that didn't really resolve the, the reputation problem. Because yes, there was a new counter narrative that said that she was not actually guilty, but she still has this tale that runs with her everywhere she goes. Whether it's an article about the exoneration or an article about the, the, the resolution of our civil case, it's still, she does not have the normal right to privacy that um, that the rest of us have that that was totally taken from her, um, and 
even though yes, anybody can see that she she was exonerated, there's still this drama that that clearly she's experienced um, that that she cannot escape. And I think that's that's interesting because usually we try to assign anonymity to victims and giving them Jane Doe. Jane Doe monikers um, so that they could go by that because we recognize that when you're a victim, having that out there and Googleable is traumatic. But if you're falsely accused too, and Ann Diaz, in fact, was allowed to go as John Doe, correct, for quite some time. Yes, he was he was thought of as as the victim um, yeah. in the in the crimes against, you know, that Michelle was charged for. Now there um, is a slightly happy mm-hmm. ending. Well, not slightly, because there's been some compensation. She has now been exonerated, but I think there was a cool subplot to her story that I do want to make sure we point out. She had met an older 85 year old, I believe arthritic grandmother while she was in prison, um, who was accused of kidnapping. And I believe she was able to help her as well after she, or she had asked her family to help her. And it really gave her some amazing perspective about the justice system. Yeah. I mean, Michelle, um, Michelle's such a smart and talented person and and so compassionate and and her room her cellmate uh was this 85 year old black woman uh and um michelle just helped when michelle finally had her liberty she was able to to help this woman as well wow well i think that is an awesome and powerful end to this story and really shows what an amazing person michelle is Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today, but I did promise everyone we were going to talk to Carrie about two cases, and she has graciously agreed to join us next week. I hope you will listen then, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Parallel Justice. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have questions about your rights after what you just heard, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicating to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. If you need a civil attorney, you can request one at victimbar.org. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, edited by Cameron Saylor, and produced by Deidre Watford. Thank you again for joining us. Please tune in next week.